Now please take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 1. I know many were wondering why we have two services today, and we didn't do it just to break up your holiday traditions. I think it's, it's a good time for us to worship the Lord together. I think oftentimes in family environments, sometimes it's hard to bring the gospel into a conversation, and Lord willing, we'll be doing that both this morning and this evening, is framing out the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that the gospel is clearly understood in some of its elements. It is hard to always express all of the gospel. But I think especially with the birth of Jesus Christ and the way it gets portrayed in our society, this is so healthy for our church to be reminded of uh, the gospel implications of Christmas. And Lord willing, both this evening as well as this morning, that will be an encouragement to you. I also know that for our family, one of our Christmas traditions is Christmas Eve service. And so Lord willing, it's not merely that we put the gospel in there, that also we help you build a tradition of celebrating this moment in a way that is distinctly church-oriented and Christ-centered, which I think if we're considering what the church is as the body of Christ, that it's good for us to be with his body and honoring him in such a way. So as we look at Matthew chapter 1, Matthew has a very Jewish orientation in most of his gospel. He is helping the Jewish reader understand the significance of who Jesus Christ is. And, and so you'll notice as we consider the text, he's assuming and leaning into um, an Old Testament understanding in some senses. And this evening, when we look in chapter 2, I think you'll see the same thing, that he is, he is heavily leaning on the Old Testament scriptures to explain who the Messiah is. So we look down in verse 18 of chapter 1. Scripture says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord, excuse me, the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And when you look at a text like this, obviously most of us are familiar with the Christmas story, how Mary was told by an angel that she was going to conceive. This picks up the Joseph element of the story, as he is the central figure in terms of the virgin birth here. But the real emphasis of this text, the real object around which this text revolves, is the identity of Jesus as revealed in the virgin birth. Notice how Matthew really makes this clear to us. He says, this happened in this way. Mary was engaged and she was found to be with child. So the picture is fairly clear. 
Joseph is marrying this young woman during their betrothal or engagement period. All of a sudden, she starts showing this baby. I don't think the point was she was discovered because she was keeping it secret. My guess is that it became obvious to all that she was expecting. And when it became undeniable, Joseph was forced with a dilemma. Notice the interesting use of the word just. He being a just man. He is not exercising a rigid sense of justice. That's why he doesn't want to put her to public shame. He's almost using justice as a code word for a man of carefulness and mercy. Rather than bringing her out and publicly shaming her, he quietly handles the situation so that he neither marries an immoral woman, nor does he bring her out to public shame or, frankly, to public stoning, which theoretically he could have done if he was going to enforce the strictest Old Testament expectations. So he's going to do this gently, carefully for her sake. And again, it's a unique word of the, of the idea of justice, isn't it? But in so doing, the angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and says, don't do this. Now, again, Matthew's point is to help us recognize Joseph's thinking is consistent with a righteous Jewish man. If you find out that your betrothed is pregnant and you didn't cause that baby, you assume and you respond appropriately that this is someone else's child. And so we recognize that this baby is not Joseph's by dint of his wanting to divorce her. Verse 20. But as he considered her quiet, or excuse me, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So in fact, she has not been immoral with anyone. This is the divine work of the Holy Spirit, who the agent of creation in Genesis is the one who forms the world at the behest of the Son under the plan of the Father. And here, he creates human life, it seems to be, by borrowing Mary's genetic humanness and strengthening somehow her body to produce a child miraculously without any type of immoral or sexual behavior by Mary. This produces a child who, in fact, verse 21 says, will be called Jesus, which means the Lord saves because he will save his people from their sins. Now, again, Matthew is laying all of this out with a deliberate goal of getting to verse 23. Even as he walks away from verse 23, look at verses 24 and 25. Joseph woke from the sleep, and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. So he takes her as a wife, verse 25, but he did not know her. That's a euphemism for sexual contact. But he did not have any type of physical relationship with her that would call into question a virgin conception and a virgin birth. And again, Matthew is highlighting private elements of Mary and Joseph's life and thinking and reasoning so that we would hear from Scripture the clear testimony that the birth of Jesus Christ was a virgin birth. And why does he go to such lengths? Because in verse 23, he wants us to recognize God is establishing a sign for all of us. And because these things are, by their nature, private, that is, generally speaking, conception happens behind closed doors. The Bible, in a very careful way, opens up the private mind and heart of Joseph and their private interactions as husband and wife so that we would all hear the testimony of Scripture saying very clearly, this is a virgin conception and a virgin birth. 
Now, why does Scripture go to those lengths? Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel is simply a Hebrew phrase smashed into one word, and it literally in Hebrew is God with us. El is that shortened name of God. Imanu would be with us. It's God with us, very simply put. It's only the third time in all of Scripture you find that word. The other two times occur in Isaiah. Now, we're going to go to Isaiah and spend the rest of our morning, for the most part, in Isaiah. So, just to give you due warning, and any of you want to pray for more Christmas miracles, this is a 30-point sermon. For those of you that thought I'm joking, I'm not. <laughs> so this is, it's going to go quick on some of these elements, but as you look at Isaiah, Isaiah from chapter 6 really to chapter 12 is, is this section on Emmanuel. It's very clearly on Emmanuel. Even though the word Emmanuel only occurs two times in this section of Scripture, three times total in the whole of the Bible. Now, I don't know if you knew that, but Emmanuel is this very unique word. So here we have Isaiah speaking of what Emmanuel is, and this is why Matthew goes to such great lengths to emphasize and strengthen our understanding and our faith that, in fact, Jesus Christ was born through virgin conception and ultimately even virgin birth. In chapter 7, Isaiah the prophet is working with the Jewish nation, really the, the tribe of Judah, king of Judah, Ahaz. So just a little bit of historical background. So, like, if you're thinking a Mediterranean map right now, and we kind of have Israel in the center here, the lower tribes, the two tribes down here, namely we just call them Judah, and the capital is Jerusalem. Ahaz is king of those southern two tribes. Then we have the northern ten tribes, and often they're called Israel. Here they're often referred to as Ephraim. And they're under pressure from Assyria who's going to come in and conquer them. And so King Ahaz is trying to figure out how to rescue his nation from impending disaster as, as this is about to happen. Isaiah speaks to this, and he comes to the king and says, listen, ask for a sign from God that he will rescue you. And Ahaz, in a false demonstration of piety, is like, oh, I don't want to test God. And, and God is, is upset with him and says, well, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And that's where we come to verse 14. Just in terms of context, look at the end of, um, the end of chapter 6. Isaiah's ministry is, is brought into um, being in chapter 6. And at the end of chapter 6, it speaks about Israel. In verse 12, it says, The Lord is going to remove the people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. So the people are going to be removed. They're going to be taken as captives. Israel is going to be a desolate place. And though a tenth remain in it, so only 10% of the people will stay behind, the land will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. Now that's going to come back as part of the Emmanuel definition that we build this morning. But notice it's almost like the line of David is going to be hacked down so that it's a stump. That's apparently, and I mean apparently as in it seems to be, dead. Then we come to chapter 7, and Ahaz is given this hope. 
Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So point number one, Emmanuel will be born from a virgin conception as a sign of God's rescue and deliverance. And this is why Matthew pulls this forward, is this person who is named Jesus is going to be given for the deliverance of the nation. As we move forward into chapter 8, not only is Emmanuel born from a virgin conception, number two, Emmanuel possesses the land of Judah. He's not merely a sign or token of God's future deliverance. We come into chapter 8, verse 8, talking about the Assyrian army is going to come through. Verse 8, it will sweep into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck of Judah is the point. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. You have now read every passage this morning with me where the word Emmanuel occurs in your Bibles. So, so Emmanuel is pictured as this one who possesses the land, and yet it's his land that Assyria comes and conquers. So literally, the Messiah, the Emmanuel, is the owner, the owner and the possessor of the land of Israel, particularly the land of Judah. But I want you to continue going on. So you look at verse 9. Emmanuel's land, then the Isaiah prophet breaks into this poetic line where he says, Be broken, you peoples, speaking of Assyria, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries, and strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your arm and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Now you notice he's not using the word Emmanuel, but he's using the idea of Emmanuel. And here what we recognize is that Emmanuel, while it means God with us, he is actually a sign of God's presence with Israel. So number three, Emmanuel brings with him the presence and blessing of God. Now this is different than saying Emmanuel is God, which I think is often how we read Matthew. That Jesus in the incarnation is God and therefore he is God with us. But Isaiah's point is something different, isn't it? Assyria is going to come sweeping in. And Isaiah, in a, in a moment of taunt, says, go ahead and make counsel. Gather your armies and put on your armor. God is going to shatter your armor and bring your counsel to nothing because God is with us. Come with me to chapter 9, verse 1. And before we jump into 9, verse 1, let me, let me just make the point. I think this is significant. Israel's problem is not a military problem, which, in fact, is their problem. By this I mean the fact that they see themselves as having a military problem when in fact their greatest problem is sin brings them to the place where they never actually fix the real problem. They don't need armies and they're trying to broker a deal with Egypt to protect them from Assyria and God wants nothing more than for his people to hear very clearly they need him. And so when we have this God with us name, it's really a title, probably is more more appropriate than thinking of it as a name. It's not like his first name. It's who he is. He's Emmanuel. That God is saying that this one who comes is actually going to be someone who brings about a resolution to your actual problem. Look with me in 9.8. I think you'll see it. The Lord has sent a word, or maybe I could say the Lord decrees judgment against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. So God declares judgment. Look down in verse 13. The people did not turn to him 
who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. Go down to chapter 10, verse 5, and I think it makes clear what he's saying in chapter 9. Woe to Assyria, the... You guys with me in chapter 10, verse 5? The rod of my anger. So who's Assyria? It's this foreign nation, but God basically... Let me use words that probably will make you think something different than you're thinking in the text, maybe. I'm going to use my paddle, Assyria, to spank you like a child. And rather than turning to me like a loving parent who's trying to chasten you, you don't even recognize that I'm at work. and You don't turn back to me. So Israel, thinking at the very human perspective, is basically saying, I want to stop the spanking. But they don't want to stop the sinning. They don't want to renew their heart to the Lord. And they miss the whole point of the discipline of God is to bring them back into righteous relationship with him. Instead, they're just angry that life hurts. And if anything, they blame God for letting it hurt. Having recognized that then, Assyria is not merely a conquering army. Assyria is the disciplining rod of a God who loves his people. And now we come to chapter 9 and look more at the Emmanuel prophecies and recognize with that in your mind, the real problem of Israel, the real darkness of Israel is not military oppression from foreigners. It's sin. It's the darkness and the blindness of the spiritual heart that does not turn to God. 9.1, there'll be no gloom in her for, who, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Point number four, Galilee will be privileged to watch the dawning of God's light as Emmanuel begins to shine among the nations. Now, here's an incredible point. Assyria, coming from the north, where do you think they first attack? It's the northern edge of Israel, where Galilee lies. And God is saying, you are the first place in which the oppressive boots of the conquering armies penetrated into Israel. And so, you'll be the first place that sees the dawning of the light of the Messiah. And he brings to Galilee the hope of the nations and the upbringing and life of Jesus. So that when Jesus calls his disciples, they say, can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good rise up? He's a Galilean. And Jesus identified with Galilee. That's where he was raised after his time in Bethlehem and in Egypt. Point number five. Because of this recovery, the whole nation rejoices and is strengthened. Look down into verse two. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with a joy at harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Ultimately, the messianic hope of Emmanuel is that he restores the nation to a place of glory and joy. Number six, the joy is rooted in the Messiah bringing in an era of peace. Look at it, look in verse five. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What do you do with all your tanks and airplanes after there is no more war? You use them for scrap. What do you do for your boots and your armor? 
you melt them down, you repurpose them. They're no longer implements of war because the Messiah brings in an era of peace. In 9.6, we come to our seventh point. Emmanuel is God's agent, a gift from God himself. Verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. God looks at Emmanuel as his gift and expression of love for his people. He is not merely someone who comes to redeem us. He is God's gracious gift to his people because it is to us a son has been given. The Messiah is the national pride of Israel. He is the joy of every redeemed Israelite, and they will be excited and glory in him more so than any athlete ever is the pride of his fan. It is funny how people glory in their sports heroes. We all know Michael Jordan was the best ever. But you will hear people proudly declare, proving their own lunacy, that it's some other basketball player. It is amazing how intense and long and serious those debates really go. I mean, facts are plain. I don't know why the debate has to go on. But it is funny to me. It is funny to me how serious fans are about their athletes. Can you imagine the joy and the glory and the pride of the nation of Israel as Emmanuel comes, brings victory, and defeats oppression? Emmanuel will be the pride and the joy of the nation because he is God's gift to his people. Number nine, excuse me, number eight. Emmanuel will be the head of the government. Simply put, he will rule the nations. The governance of those nations will rest on his shoulders. He will not merely be a savior who rescues from sin. He will be a savior who leads his people out of sin and into righteousness. He's not merely a general who conquers armies. He is the leader who shepherds the people of Israel. Number nine, his decisions will demonstrate his wisdom and his insight into the direction the people should go. He will be called a wonder of a counselor. People will stand back in awe, amazed at the discernment and the discretion that he demonstrates when he leads the nation. Emmanuel is the mighty God. More than any other clear expression of Emmanuel, this one proves his deity. So not only does he bring with him the blessing of God Almighty, who conquers all armies, He himself is God Almighty. And so Emmanuel's not merely the presence of God. He is God. And so those who enjoy his fellowship enjoy the fellowship of the mighty God. He's also the everlasting father. Which means, I think we're at number 10 or 11 now, that he cares for, comforts, and protects his people. That's what fathers do. They guard their children. They shepherd them. They provide. Number 11, he is the prince of peace because he establishes a worldwide era of peace. And so while you may make it mistakenly think that there would be no conflict, in chapter 9, but especially in chapter 11, you'll recognize that he is deciding with equity for the poor. He is protecting the weak and the impoverished. He is bringing justice on those who are oppressors, which implies there's oppressors. It implies that there are people who are going to take advantage of the weak because they're strong. If this is the case, it implies, I think very clearly, that there's a future kingdom in which Jesus reigns, brings in an era of peace, but people's hearts are still sinful. 
So we're not talking about the eternal heaven in which there are no sinful hearts, but we're talking about an earthly kingdom in which Jesus literally rules as king, the government's on his shoulders, and he brings peace over the world, and yet people's hearts still are not fully aligned with God himself. Emmanuel's kingship will be eternal. Notice how at the end of this, uh, verse 7, the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He has an eternal kingdom in which it will be ever-expanding and more glorious. At no point will you be ever, ever be able to look back and say, yesterday was better than today. Which is what every politician does. Right? Tell me if you are better off today than you were when Joe Biden took office. Which is the reason you should vote for me. Well, it's leveraging our nostalgia, but here Christ's kingdom will increase ever in its glory and influence. He is definitively and literally a descendant of David, and he will govern David's kingdom, ruling over Israel's people in the capital of Jerusalem. It's no wonder that both Luke and Matthew are so careful to help us to see that these prophecies are, are fulfilled with literal fulfillment. Virgin is not some metaphor. It's a literal fulfillment, and Matthew goes to great lengths to prove to us that she was not sexually active before the birth of Jesus Christ, so that we might know Scripture as being clearly, plainly, and literally understood and fulfilled. Emmanuel's Isaiah, excuse me, Isaiah's Emmanuel will be Israel's king, and he's descended from David literally. He will reign on David's throne over David's people in a literal Israel. And he will do so in David's realm, stretching from the great river of Egypt to the Euphrates River. He will exercise geopolitical authority so that there, he is actually ruling, not just in the hearts of people who trust in him, but over society, its civics, and its ethics. This is the constant testimony of Scripture. It is unchanging between Old and New Testaments. Jesus Christ is coming back, and he will reign as king from Jerusalem, his capital. And he'll do so with justice, and righteousness. Look in verse 7 at the end. With justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. I want you to consider this just as an application. By the way, I think that was number 14. And 15. Well, justice and righteousness. That if this is the ethic of the king and this is what he is going to bring to his people, there is no reason why his people are so indifferent to their own righteousness and justice today. The glorious kingdom of the coming Christ is going to have an ethos of justice where rightness and moral uprightness or rectitude where we treat people fairly and correctly, we behave in such a way that were the light of the world to shine us, we would not be ashamed, we would not be ashamed of our wrongdoing. That should be the fiber of your internal commitment to do right. Because that's our king. And from his righteous throne flows a commitment to exercise justice and righteousness for his people, and they become like him, righteous and just. Please do not take lightly or be negligent of a commitment to follow after your Messiah. I would add to this, as you look down and we go to number 16, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And probably one of those really sweet points of Scripture, God is accomplishing this because of his jealousy over his people. 
So why is God rescuing us through his son? Because he loves his people and he's jealous over them that they be righteous and rightly related to them, to him, excuse me. In other words, God's passion for his people and their rightness and fellowship with him is actually what energizes the commissioning, the sending, and the mission of the Messiah. God is not indifferent to your sin, and he's not indifferent to your condition. The whole work of the Messiah is to call you to God the Father, who in jealousy wants you to be faith-filled and loving and devoted to him. This is why he sends his son on the mission to save mankind. This is why he redeems all of Israel. This is why Jesus Christ dies, is because God is passionate and jealous for the hearts and the righteousness of his people. Isaiah 11, and we will go a little bit quicker here, so some of you that are getting nervous. We're on number 17. The Messiah will be a recovery of David's almost demolished line. Look with me in chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Do you remember how in Isaiah 6, Israel's like a stump where they'd been hacked off and they're just kind of this dead tree with just a little bit poking out of the ground, a stump. And from that stump that seems to be dead and gone arises this shoot of Jesse, this descendant of David. The Messiah will be a recovery of David's almost demolished line of kings who seemed to disappear from the time of Malachi until the birth of the Messiah. And through genealogies, we know that Joseph literally carries for Jesus the legal inheritance of David. Man's promise is being literally fulfilled in Jesus. He will lead then, if we go down to verse 6. Oh, excuse me, I missed it. Don't go down to verse 6, go down to verse 2. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So here's the Emmanuel for us. He is one who is guided by the Holy Spirit, and it leads him to express the fruit of the Spirit in, in necessary qualifications for a king. What does a king need to be? Well, he needs to be wise and understanding. He needs to have the ability to perceive what is right so that he is a, a man of counsel. He needs to exercise his rule with authority or strength. He needs to understand how the situation and the politics of the land lie so he has knowledge. And he does it out of motivation for the Lord. And so he piles together these six attributes of the king. That last one, the fear of the Lord, number 24 if you're keeping count. These six descriptors remind us that our Savior, our King, rules in a perfect submission of the Holy Spirit. And like his people who have the fruit of the Spirit, he has the fruit of the Spirit. And exercising his rule and governance over his people. He does this to the best advantage of God's goals. This is what it means to fear the Lord. The Messiah is certainly not afraid of displeasing the Lord. He has no sin for which he should be fearful of justice. This is not a fear of the Lord's judgment, but a desire to fully please him in all his ways. So when we look at the fear of the Lord and we recognize we are called the fear of the Lord, here we see that the Messiah, the Emmanuel, is one who walks and governs in the fear of the Lord. His greatest goals are not to accumulate more power or glory for himself. It is not to be pleasing to the people, but to be pleasing to his Father in heaven. And so, we recognize that Emmanuel 
lays for us a pattern of life and motivation. Number 25, he judges fairly based on the application of what is right and not what benefits him or brings him more power. Looking again in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 3 at the end, he says, He shall not judge by what his eyes see, but decide disputes by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor. and Decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And so we, we see the Messiah, the Emmanuel, will judge. And judgment here, number 26, will protect the innocent, the helpless, and the poor, rather than doing what's expedient for his kingdom. Number 27, he will judge the wicked and the evil person and declare judgment with his great power so that the tyrant, the oppressor, and the wicked will certainly not escape judgment. So notice that justice is a benefit to the poor and a detriment to the mighty. And maybe we could say the innocent poor and the guilty mighty. So that the poor look at justice as their great comfort and the wicked their great condemnation. It's just like a bright light exposing you when you're doing wrong or doing right. And so, too, the kingship of Christ will bring about it justice, rescuing the weak, the innocent, the victim, and bringing judgment on the guilty. Number 28, he will do what is right. Just simply said, he will do what is right. Whether he's making judgments or he himself is acting or he's leading the nations, he will do what's right. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. He'll be faithful. On a regular basis, I promise my wife I'll do things. On a regular basis, I fail her. It is not because I don't love my wife. It is because I'm not in control of much. I'm not even in control of myself half the time in terms of what I'm doing or where I'm going. I'm often at the service of my children or inconveniences like flat tires. We will have a king who never breaks a promise, who never speaks an untrue word, and never deceives his people. We'll have a politician, and it feels like the first time ever, who will never lie to us. What a blessing to know that when the king says that he loves his people, and he'll be motivated by a passion for the Lord, that that's actually what's true. And when he says he'll rescue us, he actually will rescue us. Our Savior has never lied, and he never will. He is faithful, and he does what is right. I want you to look at the last section, and then consider all that this means. So when Matthew says that this virgin birth proves that Jesus Christ is the Emmanuel, all of this is the, the freight that he's piled into this word and then proven in Matthew 1. Consider how this ends then in Isaiah eleven six: The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion, the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand over the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as waters cover the sea. This conclusion is a little bit startling, isn't it? 
We've talked about the messianic hope of Emmanuel, how he's going to come in and rescue the nation. He's going to lead this glorious kingdom in righteousness and justice. He's going to bring peace to the world. Little did we know that that includes the animals. I mean, his peace is so pervasive that when we say Prince of Peace, we don't mean wars stop. Merely that, we also mean animals stop doing the animal things they do. Right? The snake no longer bites. At least not children. The cow safely grazes with a carnivore. The lamb is fearless as it plays with the lion. Why? Because the Prince of Peace has declared there will be peace. How pervasive then his might when it says mighty God that he has renovated the animal world so that they're at peace with one another. And the digestive systems of these animals can handle being vegetarians. I mean, what mom wants to see their child playing with a cobra? I mean, you don't get slinkies for Christmas, you get cobras. And mom's like, here you go, Junior, have fun. We want to talk with adults. Why? Because the animal is safe. Now, as with Matthew, I think there's a point to this. It's not merely to call us to recognize that the Messiah brings salvation to the whole world so that what Romans says is true, that even creation is groaning, waiting for its redemption. But that we would recognize the cause. Look at, look at verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for, that's a causal connection here, here's the cause, my excuse me, not my, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. The hope of Israel is not in armies, it's not in conquering kings. The hope of Israel that finally brings restoration to the land and its inhabitants and the whole world is for the first time since the garden, man knows the Lord. This is not merely a knowledge of facts. It's not like we all memorize our Bible so we can quote in the beginning all the way to the end of Revelation where it says, Amen. It's that we actually know the Lord in personal fellowship by faith and repentance towards sin. It is this thought, then, as, as Israel suffers under the wrath that is, is demonstrated in the serious destruction of them, they miss it. Their redemption is not in armies, but in knowing the Lord. And Isaiah's prophecy should lead them to hope in the Lord, not in military prowess. And yet we, we as people often struggle with this very thought. There will never, ever be any hope in your home if you do not have the Lord. The rescue for your children is not better discipline techniques or no time in front of screens. The hope of your children is definitely not homeschool or public school or Christian school. The hope of our nation is not better weapons and faster jets or Tom Cruise flying them. The hope of our nation and the recovery of the world is anchored not to some trite hope for the cessation of wars and the destruction of evil people like Hamas. The hope of of our world is that they might know the Lord. 
and his saving redemption through the work of Jesus Christ, you will never have hope that your children turn out if they do not know the Lord. I don't mean know about the Lord. They can color pictures and bring home and say, Mom, look what I drew you. And it's a really cute picture of Jesus dying on the cross. That will not bring hope to your home unless they believe in the Jesus of the cross. It doesn't matter how much money you give to the church. Please don't stop. (laughs) It matters if you know the Lord. It matters if you know the Lord. Do you trust him? Do you know him? If I were to ask you, do you have a personal walk with the Lord where by faith you obey him and in love you would give up your whole life for his sake and you can't answer yes, then you have yet to experience God with us. This is the hope of nations. It's the hope of animals. And it's the hope of every person who believes in Jesus Christ. Again, the great problem of Israel is sin. And that is our great problem. We neither think of sin as that sinful nor that worthy of the condemnation it definitely brings. Turn from sin and know the Lord. Emmanuel is the hope and the only hope and the only rescue and the only savior and the only worthy king. And in his kingdom, all those who trust in him will forever have life. Often we strip heaven of the thing that makes it heavenly. Because you talk about living in the afterlife without penalty of hell, but the greatest gift of heaven is Jesus. And were Jesus not to be there, it would cease to be heaven. Christmas loses its worth if you don't have Jesus. If you've been living in this town, inevitably you identify as a Christian. But Jesus very clearly says, many say to me, Lord, Lord, And he will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, because they have not obeyed him. He says, why do you call me Lord? You don't do what I tell you to do. So the testing or the proving of our faith is obedience out of love and faith. Do you love Jesus? Do you know the Lord? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the hope that in the virgin birth that Matthew so clearly explicates You have declared and preached to us that Emmanuel has come. And surprisingly, the way he purchases the peace for the nations is through his sacrificial death on the cross, by which he paid for that which brings your wrath. He paid for sin. He paid for our wrongs to be forgiven. He paid for our guilt to be removed so that we no longer have to hide who we are, but we can freely declare we are sinners who are saved by grace. And so with boldness, we declare that not we are worthy, but that the one who is worthy has qualified us and brought us into right relationship with you, whereby we know you. We walk in righteous fellowship with you so that all of the promises that have been granted to us are yes because of him. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you that the great hope that you give to Israel 
that you'll be with them as you promise to bring them out of Egypt. And the great hope of every Christian as we look at the New Testament promises of Revelation is that one day we'll be gathered around the throne of the Son and we will be with you and you will be our God. And the promise is that this is accomplished through the one who is Emmanuel because he brings with him the presence of God. Lord, I pray that each person in this room would walk with and know you by faith that they might be saved eternally, granted life to one day be citizens of your kingdom, to today be citizens of your kingdom, and one day be in it physically and spiritually. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.